Thank you, Benjamin and worship team. Good morning, everyone. Oh, let me leave my way through here. Good to see everybody. It was a great job that Rose did. Or not Rose, Pam did. Well, Rose too, she helped. Um, but I know my wife and I were talking about when we were younger, we lived in Texas, and she attended a MOPS and a preschool-type ministry that was significant, and it's a joy to see our daughter Bethany and um, involved in that as well. So shout out to all you young moms and also for those that are helping with their ministry. Thank you. A couple other things. Um, if you didn't come to the picnic yesterday, I hope it was because you had something else to do. It wasn't because you weren't invited, because you were invited, but I did meet a number of people who said, oh, I, we didn't know about it. So I do want to encourage you to always read the current that we hand out. We have been talking about it, but we've tried to cut out on announcements. But occasionally we'll call attention to something. In your insert today, you should have received um, a, a little description of two proposed elder candidates. As we talked about a few weeks ago, we believe the Bible teaches that churches should have a plurality of godly elders who meet certain qualifications. So you'll see the testimony of Matt Moyer. Matt and Ann have been a part of our church for a long time, very significant in children and um, the on Wednesday night as well with the boys' ministry we're great, and the women's ministry. We're grateful for them. And then also Shizu. Some of you may have had a chance to meet Shizu and his wife, Lindsay. Shizu helps with our young adults and is a graduate of Karen. He actually is preaching this morning, so pray for him. He's excited to be preaching over at an E-Free church in New Jersey, and um, he's a very gifted, uh, godly young man. So be sure to read them and pray for our young candidates. Also, I hope... Uh, I hope uh, you enjoyed last week. It was such a blessing to observe the baptisms. Ironically, there were at least, I think, four or five people after seeing the baptisms last week said, put me down for next one. So if you have been moved by the Lord and said, you know, I want to get baptized, let us know. Email the office, and if there's enough people, we may move it up a little closer. But God's Spirit is, is working in people's lives, and it was, it was encouraging to hear how God has um, worked in hearts. Now, this morning, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible or our, our um, folks are coming, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to give you a Bible, and um, you're welcome to keep the Bible, or if you just need it for today, but we certainly want you to, to be in the habit of reading the Bible, and we're reading 1 Timothy where we're talking about what local churches should look like. It's not a free-for-all or, or creative artist thing where we just make up ideas, but we're trying to say, okay, God, what do we do as a local church? And we've seen significant things about protecting the doctrines of the faith, about having leaders, about prayer and the role of men and women. But this morning, we're going to talk about the church's responsibility to care for the poor. And it's interesting because sometimes one of the benefits of studying history is if you don't ever look at history, you can sort of view your world as the way it's always been. You know, so people find it fascinating when they realize the whole concept of public school. That's recent. That's not normal in history, public school. But think about this one. How about the whole issue of caring for the poor? Well, everyone knows that's what the government does, right? And like, does everyone know that? And historically, has that been the case that in most societies, the primary responsibility of caring for the poor was government welfare and social security and things like that? No. And so it raises the question among Christians is to say, whose responsibility is it in the world to care for the poor? Secondly, 
What is the church's responsibility to care for poor people, and especially maybe people as well who are temporarily in need? Interestingly, when, when, when you sort of read what Jesus had to say about poverty and about helping the poor and about how, what you do with your resources as a reflection of your relationship to God, he had a couple things to say. One of them was that we should love one another as he loved us so that the world would know we're his followers, that Christianity would be attractive because of the way we take care of one another. Now, ideally, there's always going to be more, more people than we can ever help everybody. In fact, Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. But as Christians, we have to sort of prioritize and think, do I have an obligation to help poor people? If so, which poor people? Which people in need? And how do I prioritize that? So, for example, in Galatians 6, Paul said, while we have an opportunity, we should do good to all men. But then he said, especially those who are of the household of faith. So, so if I had two turkeys extra for Thanksgiving, he says, the first thing you should think of is if you have a Christian family who's in need, right? But then even beyond that, he tightens the circle. The Bible says, you're supposed to take care of your own family. If a person doesn't provide for his own family, he's worse than a non-Christian. So as a church, we go, what do we do to help the poor? Isn't that just something the government does or, you know, the church does? And how do I interact as a, as a Christian with poor people and people who have needs? And how do I know if they have real needs or it's not they're just being lazy or just trying to milk the system? So this passage is really helpful for us because it provides us a framework as to a, a, a cultural setting that took place in the first century. We don't have quite this scenario, but we then, this is why we're trying to teach you how to read and interpret the Bible. You go, what did it mean in that culture? And then we ask, how do I apply it in our culture? So the cultural need at this time, and then we'll pray, was that there was a real significant problem with caring for widows. Now, not that that's never been a problem. It's always been a problem on earth, caring for widows and orphans, and that's part of showing your Christianity. But particularly in the first century in Roman culture, because once a woman was widowed, number one, there was no government support. She couldn't go on welfare. There was no such thing as life insurance, so her husband couldn't leave her life insurance. And significantly, it was very unusual for a woman to enter, quote, the workforce. So you would never just say to a woman, well, just tell her to get a job then, right? So it put widows in a very difficult situation because the, their husbands who were providing for them are no longer available to, to provide for them, and now they're stuck. And so, sadly, some women turned to prostitution and slavery because they just didn't have any way to take care of themselves. So in the early church, it became clear that Christians have a responsibility to take care of these, these widows. And so in the book of Acts, we see the first situation as they're having these growing pains. There's a conflict about caring for the Jewish widows and the Gentile widows. But what they decided to do at a certain point early on in the history of the church was to have a special situation where you would permanently provide for a widow. In other words, you would make a, an agreement. The local churches would have a list to which a woman would sign on and she would receive support for the rest of her life. Now, again, as I'm interpreting the Bible, this is different from somebody who might have a situational need. Like somebody might say, hey, I'm between jobs or we don't have health insurance, we have a situational need. This passage is about a list of widows that they were going to permanently put on the list and support them the rest of their lives. So, 
Paul recognizes that this could be tricky because anytime, not that it ever happens, but anytime someone gives people free money without holding them accountable to any responsibilities, then that's dangerous, right? We all look at the welfare system. And before we throw the welfare system under the bus, we need to have welfare because there's poor people. But it needs to be managed welfare where, where it's kind of a problem if people go, why would I want to work when I get more money by not working, okay? But nevertheless, we can't go, so don't do anything. So they had this list for poor widows who could be almost, as some commentators felt, they actually became employed by the church. So they, they almost came on staff because later in the early history of the church, they literally did this. And you're like, what, were they like nuns? They made a vow of celibacy? No, in fact, I don't think that when women were put on this list and made this permanent promise to stay single, that this was, they were considered staff members. But let's look at what Paul said to these people, and then at the end we're going to go, all right, so what's our role as Christians? We might not have this particular scenario, but there are definitely people who are in sometimes temporary need, sometimes permanent need, and how do we provide for them both individually as a church? and as a church. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes as we study this passage. It has significant help for us, and I pray that you would bless your word through the Holy Spirit. Help us to grow as a church and truly try to be what Jesus wants us to be for his glory as we reach the world for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, verses 1 and 2 are actually not really connected with the widow issue. They probably are more connected with the previous paragraph. Now, remember this. I always tell you, read through the Bible book by book. If you can do this, try to blank out the chapter breaks because chapter breaks were added years later. Paul wasn't writing this letter going, okay, put chapter five here, right? So sometimes when they put a chapter break in there, you, you disconnect what he's been saying, what, if, what he's about to say. So I only learned this this week. I never saw this before, but in verses one and two, I think it's actually relating back to what we saw last week where Paul said to Timothy, you need to speak the word of God into the lives of your people. And if the people are older than you, don't let them look down on your youth, but be an example. But study the word and teach the word and pay attention to yourself and live out your Christianity. So in light of that, in verses 1 and 2, if you're taking notes, what Paul's saying here is, here's how to encourage biblical change among people in your church. Encouraging biblical change looks like this. When we come to Christ and we are forgiven of our sins, we are all called by God to learn the words of Jesus, to learn the teachings of Jesus so we can become like him. And we learn how we become like him under the Spirit's enablement. But it also involves then encouraging biblical change in one another's lives. This is not just for preachers. In Colossians chapter 3, now this is your role. It says, let the words of Jesus dwell in your heart richly and then teach and encourage one another. So a scenario where you see somebody with an issue in their life and you want to go, hey, you know, as a Christian, I want to encourage biblical change in your life. So I, I want to speak the word to you, okay? As a parent, right? That's what parents do. But this should be part of normal Christianity, so what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, listen, if you're encouraging biblical change among your peers, your friends, you should relate to them as family members. And it's really important to remember this. It's not just what you say, but how you say it. So maybe 
you see a problem with your spouse that's significant or legitimate, and you, and you want to speak into their lives. But depending on how you say it, you may totally dismantle what was well-meaning. Same thing with people in the church, okay? So look what Paul says. Don't sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. Now, the point would be something like this. As you're encouraging biblical change, it's really not all that effective to just get in someone's face. This is a rare word. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It almost has a violent aspect to it, like just go, you need to stop behaving like that. Paul goes, that doesn't help. Now, he gives an analogy, but it's, it's rather unfortunate that we live in a society where people have such dysfunctional fathers that sometimes, not everybody, but sometimes you're like, well, that's not how it was in my house. Paul goes, but rather, if you saw something in your dad that, that you're like, wow, that concerns me. My dad's really being hypocritical here. You know, he says we should be generous, but he's being selfish. He says we shouldn't talk like this, but he's being hypocritical. You wouldn't yell at your dad and go, you're a big hypocrite. Some of you go, I did. Well, you learn from Scripture not to do that, but you appeal to him as a father. So you say, hey, dad, you know, I really love you. I respect you. I appreciate everything you do. I just want to ask you a question. Like sometimes when you say this or your attitude is like this or you treat mommy like this or you act like this, it's hard for me to understand how that fits with your Christianity, and, and, and as I want to look up to you as a leader, right? And, and if you get in their face and go, how dare you challenge me? I'm a man of God. You got big problems, Pop. Like our kids should feel free to, in the right way, say, hey, I, I want to see this. So, so what Paul's doing is he's saying, if you want to encourage biblical change in the lives of others around you, family, friends, and other Christians, you do it in a very gentle way. Notice. You rather appeal. Now, that word appeal is, is actually normally translated encourage, admonish. So it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Even as a parent, you can yell and lecture, I'm big, you're little, or after all I've done for you. But you might find that that has less influence. So in essence, I think what he's saying here, encouraging biblical change, have a model in your mind that this is my family and how I might try to help someone in my family change provides a good role model for how I should do that with other Christians. So he says, you appeal to them, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters. And then Paul remembering or being cognizant that it's always dangerous for men to counsel women on a long-term basis. He goes, be sure if you're, if you're speaking into a younger woman's life, do it in all purity. And, I, and, and as a general rule, a man should not be a, the counselor to, to a Christian woman on a regular basis, that, that over the long haul, it's, it's better to encourage women to counsel women, men to counsel men. And all guys need to be just reminded, don't use your position of influence, especially in a ministry role or a leadership role, to take advantage of women. I mean, we all, and you, you should pray for all of your pastors. If any pastor goes, oh, I'm beyond that, I'm... You know, we're all sinners, and we need to just, as the Bible says, be careful, right? So, but here's the thing I want you to think about. The, the, the underlying premise here is that I should consider the church my family, okay? I just got a, a, a somebody sent me this, and I want to read you just two quick quotes about the problem with American Christianity and then the, the, the church 
in the scriptures. So, and that's why we're always going, well, that's not the way things are. Well, this is what God says, and that's why we hear the word and we're trying to be transformed. But listen to this quote about um, the way many Americans view church. He calls it a, a consumeristic mentality. He says, too many believers passively relate to their local church with a consumeristic mentality rather than being committed as active participants and partners in ministry. A shocking amount of Christian consumerism exists in the church of Jesus today. Many, many believers think of their church as a place to attend rather than something with which they're intimately involved. Now, as I thought about that, I'm going to go, let me take it a step further. It's not just intimately involved. This is your family. If this is your church, this is your local church, these are your family members. Now imagine if you had a tradition that on Sundays you would go to your, your grandmoms for dinner and everyone in the family would show up. Would you just not show up sometimes? Not even call, just not show up? You'd be like, of course not, right? But isn't that how a lot of people look at church? Like, yeah, well, you know, it was a nice day. We went to the beach. Um, we, we felt like we were tired, you know. So people that just come to church once in a while, it, in my judgment, unless they have a really good reason for that, shows a lack of an understanding that a local church is a commitment to your local family, and you don't just go, oh, um, I don't feel like coming today. Now, please don't, please don't take this too far and go, so from now on, if I'm not going to be there, do you want me to call you ahead of time, Pastor Tom? No, please don't do that. But, but take it to heart. Are you a consumer of your local church, or are you committed to the church family. Now, one last thing on this verse. Many of you have heard that we are starting a, a series of studies this fall called How People Change. We have over 120 people signed up already. We've sold out of the study guides three times already. We're getting more, so unfortunately, we don't have the study guides today. We'll have them again next week. But if you haven't learned about that, we're offering it Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Janet, Wednesday, Wednesday morning and... Thursday morning. So we would love for everybody, especially leaders, to be a part of this. This is not world without end. We'll never do it again. When we come back in the spring, we're going to have all kinds of Bible studies. But what we're trying to do is say there's something about studies like this that teach you that the goal of a Bible study in a small group is not just to go, those were good brownies. And that's really interesting that the Antichrist um, is going to do this, this, and this. But go, hey, the goal of Bible study and small group is to apply scripture to your life and to say, as a result of learning God's word, am I becoming a stronger person of prayer? Am I becoming less selfish? Am I learning to be a better husband? Am I learning to handle my money? Am I learning to work on my personal purity or idols in my life? So please, don't look at this study as something just to make everybody into counselors in the sense of like we're going to hypnotize people or whatever, but the sense of saying, hey, I want to learn how the Bible helps me to change, then how to speak it into other people's lives. So I truly believe this will be monumental. Now, lest we go, oh, you know, this is not some new thing that no one ever thought about, you know, how people change. This is just what the Bible teaches about how to apply the Bible as you study it. And if nothing else, it would be a great thing for you to go, all right, well, I got this area in my life. I've been wanting to change for years. Maybe I'll come to this study this fall with the goal of going, wonder if God could change me in this area. And I can tell you this, everyone who's been through it has said, wow, it really helped me to change. And you're like, well, that's not my problem. I need to bring my, my spouse so they change. But actually, if that's your attitude, that is your problem. <laughs> right? Okay, so enough with that because that's not really 
the point of this widow's thing. So real quick now, as we move through this, what Paul's going to start out with saying, okay, I want you to help widows who are in need. So he begins with a general call to provide for, for these true widows in this setting. So look at verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. So he begins by commanding children and grandchildren to provide for their own. So he's gone, don't, don't provide for all widows. Look at verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, that's a fascinating verse. This is why hope that you're learning to love the Bible and go, wow, the Bible applies to every area of my life. Many people haven't even thought about this, right? First of all, when Paul says, let them learn to practice piety, a lot of people, when they first hear that, they go, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound fun. What are you going to do today? I'm going to practice piety. That sounds like practicing the violin. I'm sorry, Benjamin. I mean, some people find that fun, but most people are like, I don't want to do that. What do you mean, practice piety? What that really means is learn to be godly. If, oh, yeah, Margie too, sorry about that. All of you musicians, I'm sorry, all right, I'm just getting that out there. But to practice piety should not be something that we think that's just limited to a few people. Every Christian should have a deep commitment to becoming godly. That's the same word for godliness. That becoming godly, as Paul said last week, doesn't happen by accident. Discipline yourself to become godly. So Paul goes, here's an area that you could work on becoming godly. Everyone needs to think about their responsibility to care for their family. Now, as kids in American culture, we sort of talk about, wow, I can't wait to get them off of the gravy train. Because in an agrarian society, kids are an asset, right? The more kids you have, the more workers on the farm. In our society, for the most part, kids are a financial liability growing up. There's a lot more going out, you know, to stay in the black or in the red. But Paul says... God has designed life so that there needs to be a shift at some point where, where people learn to make some return to their parents. Parents are going, preach it, Brother Allen, preach it. Because I know they're just going to not take care of me, right? So, so, but that's biblical. That's normal. And this is pleasing to God. So I just want you to think about that. You have an obligation to care for your other family members and especially your parents as they get older. Well, that's not my job. He should have saved up for retirement. I can't help it if he was irresponsibly. Eh, wrong answer. So, okay, Paul says, so that's the first thing. Now he begins to describe who these widows are who should get on this special list. And, and in a nutshell, he's going to do two things. Two things. They need to be godly, and they need to be without family. And he's going to toggle back and forth to describe this. So look at, at verse 5. The one who is a true widow, one indeed has been left alone. In other words, she doesn't have kids or grandkids. Now, she has fixed her hope on God. In other words, this is a woman who has already in the past made a decision that she's going to rely on God, she's going to live for God, she's going to depend on Jesus. Okay? You don't just suddenly put on a chameleon face so you can get on the list. Much like some men and women do that when they meet a Christian. They're like, tell me how to act so you'll marry me. It's not real. It's not coming from the heart. It's just a game so they can jump through the hoops and, and get what they want. But a godly woman is a woman who has already learned to trust God. And then she continues in prayers and entreaties night and day. Man, I wish I lived in those countries where they go. The pastor can preach all day and the people go, keep preaching. But 
Um, let me just say a couple things real quick about this. The older you get, don't think that you are less valuable to the church. You may not have the same energy. You may not have the same strength to get involved in the, in the, in the day-to-day operations, but your prayers matter. And godly older women who are praying for the church are, the, are I might want to say, the backbone. Every church needs them, and godly older men. So don't think, gee, I, I can't get out of the house. You can pray. You can call heaven down. You, you're the engine room. You can bring power from God. Right? And you're like, that's so weird. You mean people spend hours in prayer? Yeah, I, I know of women who do this, who spend hours in prayer. Right? Now, some commentaries say, well, this is like a staff member. You, you know, these were actually women on staff who were paid to pray. and Venice. No, this is what a godly woman looks like. Now, now, I recognize as, as Pamela's saying, I got five kids. I'm just trying to be clothed and in my right mind. I don't have you know, five hours a day to prayer. The context is as a woman's older and she doesn't have household responsibilities and working outside the home. So that's cool, right? But then he says, he says, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Now you're like, man, Paul's harsh there. But, but think about what he's saying here. He's saying, if a widow, and probably he's talking about a woman who's already on the list. If a woman is receiving permanent support from the church and all she does is goof off with her time, she's dead even while she's alive. Like, how dare Paul say that? Jesus said that. He said to one of the churches in Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, he said, you're half dead. You're alive, but you're half dead. And that, that's a challenge for, for me and you as a Christian to go, if all I'm living for is my pleasure... All I'm living for is on a horizontal thing about my next vacation or whether I'm going to get that promotion or whether I look good or my body looks good or whether people like me or whether my kid's the most successful kid in school. If all I'm living for on a horizontal level, God's going, you're dead while you live. As John Piper said, you're wasting your life because Christians are to live for Jesus, not for... Now, God's not against having fun. He's not up there, are you having a good time? Stop it. But unrestrained pleasure right now he's going to later on describe what this looks like the proverbial woman who eats bonbons watches soap operas all day and he's not a chauvinist right because there are some lazy men who all they do is golf all day and goof off and fish and they don't do any work because in the bible there's no such thing as retirement from christianity you can retire from your job but not from being active for christ right so he says this is what a true widow looks like he says, so teach these things. So I'm like, okay, God, I'll do it. I'll teach us. I'm do, just doing what you said, so don't hate me. i say, that's a little harsh. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That's what pastor's supposed to do. Now, verse 8, he then toggles back, and he says, I want to get back to those providing for your family. If you don't provide for your family, the Bible has some really strong words about that. Look at verse 8. If anyone doesn't provide for his own. Now, the word here probably has the idea of your own extended family cousins, you know, but then, and especially for those of your household, so men, if you don't provide for your wife and kids because you're too preoccupied with your addictions or your foolish wasting of the family money on gambling or laziness or dopey, unwell, thought-out investments and so forth, and, and your family's regularly 
not even having their basic needs met, God says, that's worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith. Now, this whole concept of deadbeat dads, you know, that's a serious thing in the Bible, to not take care of your wife and children. And I see it, and it's sad, and God doesn't hate you if you do that, but he's rebuking you, right? And saying, hey, this needs to change. And for some of you, you, you can think about, somebody came to me one time and said, you know, I need some money, I have to do some medical things. I don't have any money. I do have um, a close relative, but they won't help me. I said, well, I want you to go to that close relative who said they won't help you and read them this verse. Like, are you allowed to do that? Nobody told me you can, right? You're supposed to speak the word of God. So they read them that verse, and that relative was shocked by that verse and said, fine, I'll help you for this one, but don't ask me again. And I'm going, oh, hey, at least they're moving in the right direction, right? I'm glad that the word of God made them go, wow, I can't just tell my brother, that's not my problem, that's your problem, right? And we're not talking about being an enabler, but we're talking about helping our family. So now Paul's going to move to saying, all right, so here's what this widow should look like if you're going to put her on this permanent support list. This isn't because there's always going to be temporary needs. Hey, I can't pay my bills or, um, you know, we, we need some oil money, you know. But permanent support, he says, should be limited to a certain type of person. So we, remember we said, without family, now he's going to describe what it looks like to be godly. Look at verse 9. He says, a widow is to be put on the list. Now, this was serious. If you, if you committed to this, this was lifelong, right? A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. Now, I don't think he's going, if you're 59 and three quarters, you're going to starve for two more months until your birthday. I think he's just giving general rules, right? Having been the wife of one man. Now, some people go, she had to be married. No, much like when he said an elder has to be the husband of one wife. doesn't mean you have to be married. It means if you were married... You need to have had a reputation for being a committed spouse. You weren't a player, right? That, that you knew that this person loved their spouse, not cheating on them. Having a reputation for good works. That's a good thing, ladies. This is not, this is not a bad thing. In the book of 1 Timothy, he goes, be known for your good works. Read the book of Acts. Read about Lydia in chapter 10. When she died, all of the widows were weeping. They go, she used to make underwear for us. By hand, and they're showing Peter, and he's going, TMI, but this is great. She's a wonderful woman, right? In the Greek, it actually says that, undergarments, right? But she was known for being a person that helped people. And you're like, well, isn't that just what old people do? No. Young ladies, even if you're not married, you can begin to say, I want to be, not because I want the praise of men. I want to be godly. I want to be known for being a godly woman to the glory of Jesus. One who has brought up children. Doesn't mean if you didn't have kids, sorry, you're not supported. If she has washed the saints' feet. In other words, she was known as having a servant's heart. You're starting to get a, sort of a, an ethos of what kind of a person this is. Somebody that you just knew, like you would see her helping out at this activity and that activity and taking a meal over to somebody. Just, just this heart of helping others. If she has shown hospitality to strangers. It's not saying you always had somebody living with you. But, but, but you can see, like Paul's going, this is a type of godliness. These are practical examples of what a godly woman looks like. If she has assisted those in distress, when she hears about somebody who's in a really tough situation, she's one of the people who's like, oh, I'll go pick them up at 3 o'clock in the morning, or I'll, 
I'll certainly be willing to come over and help out with the chores, or I'll watch her kids. Or, you know, you can think about the beautiful applications, and many of you are doing this, and that's awesome. And this isn't like men going, well, we don't do that stuff. If she's devoted herself to every good work, so it kind of gives you a framework. This is, she's, she's shown herself to be a practical, godly woman. Doesn't mean she leads all the women's Bible studies, nothing about it. She's a flamboyant teacher, you know, her kids are the smartest kids and get straight A's, and she wears the best clothes. No, she's just a practical, down-to-earth, godly woman. So then Paul says, all right, let me get to this significant cultural need. Here's the women that I want you to put on the list, right? But now he goes, let me tell you why I don't want you to put younger widows on that permanent support list. He says, because I think they're going to want to get married. That's one reason. And if they're young, they're going to have too much time on their hands. So some people read this and they go, Paul's a chauvinist. And I go, get the context. He's not a chauvinist. But this is interesting. Because anytime you look at our culture and then what the Bible says, don't go, they're old-fashioned. They don't get it. We always should be open to saying, maybe we're buying into too much of the way the world does stuff. And we're forgetting that we're not called to be like the world. We're called to be transformed by God. So in the Bible, God places a very big emphasis on motherhood, family, women taking care of their home. Now, the Bible is not opposed to women working outside the home. There's not verses that say, if you, don't work out, if you work outside the home, you're a loser. But it is saying, women, if you have children, especially, you have a primary calling to oversee and and, and work with your family. And any guy who says to you who have kids, do you work or do you just stay home with the kids? You have my permission to slap them considerably because anybody knows, if any guy's got his head out of his hand, knows that staying home all day and taking care of a house and kids is way more work than I don't care what he does. A man may work from son to son. Mom's work is never done. But look at the value Paul places on family so, so he's not a chauvinist, but look what he says. Refuse to put younger widows on the list. Remember, because it's permanent. For when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married. That's why it's so important to read the Bible in context. Can you imagine a young lady come and say, Pastor, I want to get married. And you go, oh, what is wrong with you? You want to get married? You have sensual desires? Like, you want to do What? that's contextual. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get married. In fact, that's the norm. If, but if you don't want to get married, don't feel bad about that. Singleness is a blessing. But if you do want to get married, that's biblical. And if you go, I kind of like the idea of, of having a man in my life, a husband. That's biblical. But not if you've already promised you'll never do that. So this wasn't like, hey, you want to do it for a while and change your mind? So he goes, so that's why I'd rather the younger women... Just get married, remarried. Because he goes, if you break your vow, you break your promise, you incur condemnation because you set aside your previous pledge. Now, that word pledge is the Greek word for faith, but it can mean a promise. So the King James says she set aside her first faith. In other words, some people just say she's turned her back on her Christianity. But I think it's not just because she promises not to and then she gets married. It's, it's bigger than that. Let's keep reading. What, what, what's that going to lead to? At the same time, they learn to be idle. So a younger woman, she's on the gravy train, right? So she doesn't have to work. She's got no family, no house, no kids, nothing to take care of. So naturally, what did grandma used to tell you about idle hands? So he says they learn to be idle, and they go around from house to house. 
too much time on their hands, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. And again, some of you might say, how dare Paul speak like that? And you go, wait a minute. God is saying that people who you just hand them support freely, who have no responsibilities or work, are in a dangerous place, right? Much like if he was writing today, he said, would say, if you as parents are supporting your child and he lives in your basement, he's graduated from college, and all he does is play video games all day long, and you're not making him get a job, you shouldn't do that. And I know some young people say, well, I'm not doing that. I get that. But there were some women who were like, hey, this is great. I get supplied for, and I don't have any responsibilities, and they end up gossiping. And this, look at the end of verse 13. That's a great thing to remember. When, when, remember when mother used to say that? You're like, you know about so-and-so? And, and mother would, and you, you say, you shouldn't, mother would say, don't say that. And you go, why not? It's true, right? But remember, mother used to say, not just is it true, is it kind? And third, is it necessary? Some things are not proper to talk about, gossiping. Because you're like, oh, I just want you to pray about that. Do you know about so-and-so? No, we all, this isn't just for women, this is all of us. Don't gossip about people. If you hear somebody gossiping, gently call them out on it. Call me out on it. Say, hey, have you talked to them about it yet? We all have this potential of, you know, but when you got too much time on your hands, it just snowballs. So ladies, if all you're doing is going to the gym, going to the beauty parlor, going here and there, and just flitting around talking about people and not doing anything, God's warning us about that. He doesn't hate women. Now, a lot of people really struggle with the next verse. Verse 14, therefore I want younger women to get married, bear children, keep house. Oh, that Paul. He wants me to be barefoot, and pregnant, and in the kitchen. And I'm going, please stop. Okay? This is God's word. Okay? Understand there's a context here. He's not saying women shouldn't work. And they can't work outside the home. But he's saying, women, this is your primary responsibility. Now, the word keep house literally in Greek means manage your house. What's really funny is in chapter 3, he goes, husbands should manage their household. Here he says, women are to manage their household. I mean, we all talk big talk. Like I tell everybody, I run things at my house. The dishwasher, the vacuum, you know. <laughs> so it is interesting to see how Paul sort of balances that men are to manage their household. But mom's got a, a significant part in that. Don't ever be embarrassed about that, ladies. And God's not beating up on you. I, I can't even imagine the tension some of you feel trying to work and take care of the family. And please don't just tell your husband, you big loser, you don't provide for me, and I have to work, right? Even if there's some truth to certain situations, you don't sharply rebuke him, but you pray. And you young people who haven't really figured this out yet, don't put your lifestyle at a standard where you're like, we've got to have the big house and the great cars and the trips all the time, and of course we both have to work. You know, in the old days, you started real small and carefully, and then that way mom could have more time with the children, okay? So I'm not, I'm not don't, don't go, oh, if Pastor Tom knows I put my kids in preschool, he's going to judge me. I'm, I'm, that, you, you get the spirit here, right? Make your, your family your priority. But I realize that we have to navigate this. So real quickly, Paul says this. He goes, because there's women out there who probably are on the list, and he goes, they're giving the enemy a chance to speak bad about Christianity. They've turned aside to follow Satan. And, and you go, wow, that's harsh, Paul. So you're telling me that some of these women who were on the list, if they broke their vows, and now they're just out there, some commentaries say they're probably even being sexually immoral because he says they're living in wanton pleasure. He described, these aren't, these aren't unbelievers. These are Christians. 
He says, some of these Christian women have turned aside to follow Satan. Now, let's think about that. Who would ever do that as a Christian? Hey, what have you been doing lately? Well, you know, I'm a Christian, but I haven't been following Jesus lately. I, I just decided I want to follow Satan. You know, he's, he's pretty fun. He's, he's, he's got all kinds of fun stuff to do. No one would consciously and knowingly and willfully go, I think I'm going to start following Satan. But that's one of the reasons why we need the word of God. Because God's going, you can get so mixed up in your values and your lifestyle and your priorities and your commitments that if you're not in Christ and walking with Jesus and around other Christians, before you know it, your life could be so off base and clueless and you're not going to church anymore and you're not reading your Bible and you've lost your way and and Satan's going, this is great. And then you wake up and you go, dear father, and I'm not preaching at you peons like, oh, this doesn't happen to, it's going to happen to all of us, right? We all have to go, I don't want to, I might go, I'm a really good guy. And God, what if God said, Tom, in some ways you're following Satan. I would be like, what? Well, yeah, if all you're doing is living for pleasure and indulging yourself and breaking your word, stuff like that. So the concluding verse, he says, if anyone has widows, let them take care of them so that the church can take care of those in need. Let me draw out real quick some application. Number one. How are you doing in terms of taking care of your family, especially men? How are you doing on that? Okay? If you know somebody that's not doing that, how are you going to speak into their lives? But here's something really important to think about. Guys, some guys take great care of their family financially. You work three jobs, you got the boat, the house, the beach house, and there's nothing wrong with that stuff. But we all need to ask ourselves, men, how are you doing taking care of your family spiritually? And emotionally. Because if all you do is work to get ahead and ahead and ahead, and you don't spend time with your family, don't think that you're like, man, I'm fulfilling this verse. You're not. And I just spoke with somebody. I speak to men all the time about this. Sometimes you have to be willing to say, you know what? I could get this career advancement and get this much more money, but I don't want to do that. Because my kids are young, and this is my chance to pour into them. And you're like, but I might never get this advance again. Well, at the end of your life, when you're laying on your deathbed, you're not going to ask for your portfolio. You want to have kids that you know you love them and you spent time with them and you know your daughter's favorite book and you know what your kids' fears and dreams are because you made them a priority, right? And your spouse a priority. Some people go, oh, he's so godly, he works 70 hours a week. Depends on why he's doing that. How are you doing secondly, Tom and church, in relating to your church as a family? You're like, well, I just rent a chair at the services. I'm a consumer. It's not how God wants you to view your local church. This is your family, right? So it's just something to think about. My small group, or I don't have time to get involved, you know. Imagine parents saying, I don't have time to get involved with my kids' lives. I mean, Billy wants to go to sports. I got my own stuff to do, right? So thinking about, am I committed to my church as a family? And then third, when you're giving to your church, don't just give individually, because that's important. I just heard somebody wrote a big check for somebody else in the church. Please don't tell me that normally. This person, wasn't, the person who told me wasn't trying to talk about anybody or whatever, but, but we do help one another informally, but we have what we call a care fund. Some of you don't even know this. So as you're giving to the Lord, and we encourage you to give to the general fund, I'd encourage you from time to time, if you have some extra, to give to the care fund, right? There's a place on the online giving or you can just write it on your envelope or just say, I want this to go to the care fund. So we have a separate care fund. We have a care team. 
godly people. And some of you might say, I would like to be a part of that. So if someone has a need, let us know, right? Now, pray for the care team because they have to manage that. That's really complicated, right? You can't just give a check to everybody who asks. So the care team has a responsibility to say, how can I make sure that this isn't a regular thing? Like if you're constantly running up credit cards irresponsibly. So we, so we encourage people to get financial counseling. Or if we go, well, they actually have a million-dollar um, inheritance coming to them, we're not going to go, well, wait a minute, use your own money unless we, we know about it. So it's not like we just hand out money. But if you know somebody that's in need, we help people all the time with the care team. So pray for them. Maybe you'll get involved with them. Give to that. And then finally, man, I'm convicted by this. I don't want to live my life for pleasure. Well, take that back. My flesh does. But I know what the Lord wants. He wants me to live my life for Christ and my church and for the gospel. So as Paul spoke of some women who had lost their wife, following, way, following Satan, living for unrestrained pleasure, let's pray that as a church. We won't get caught up in this American mentality of it's all about us and how much we can accumulate, but that we'll, we'll try to live for what matters, the advancement of the gospel, and that our good works will continue to minister to people in need, and we'll see people coming to Christ. Could I hear an amen? Somebody like, I'd like to hear the closing prayer, so you're going to hear that too. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father. The Word of God is, is so helpful. And we all have various needs. But however you apply this to the Spirit, help us to grow as a church family, as individuals, as small groups, as parents, as children. May we grow into the image of Christ as your Word changes us. Forgive us for the ways that sometimes we get caught up pursuing sinful pleasures or even just foolish pleasures and disregard the things that really matter. Thank you that your word helps to reprove and correct and encourage us what it looks like to live for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Go get your children, please.